Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 253, the Meat Puppets Monsters LP. Always love getting into a Meat Puppets record. Brant is more of a fan than I am, but I'm I am a fan. I appreciate the Meat Puppets. Very interested to hear where this record stacks up in the Meat Puppets pantheon for you, mm-hmm. um, because it's a bit of a, I would say, a controversial record with the band and with the fans. But very interested to talk about it. I do like this record, but it's uh, you know it's got its controversial aspects for sure. Yeah, for sure. I got to hit you with some spiels, but the first spiel I have for you, Brant, is a quiz. Oh, boy. Yeah. So you were mentioning how you read that uh, new Steve Turner book, mm-hmm. Mud Ride. Yep. You just cruise through the Mud Ride book. So I turned to it next. I'm just over half done. But here's my quiz for you. In chapter one of the brand new Steve Turner book, Mud Ride, what is the tie-in with anti-folk. Hmm. Oh, geez. Let me think. In chapter what? Chapter one. Really? Of the Steve Turner book, there's a tie-in, and a tie-in specifically to SST-223, the Kirk Kelly Go Man Go release we did. Oh, yeah. He does mention that, doesn't he? He mentions the Clancy Brothers. Right, right, right. That's what it was. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Those super, <laughs> those super badass Irish singers wearing like their cable knit sea captain shirts, you know, out at the bar, just getting loaded and drinking and beating the tar <laughs> out of people. The Clancy brothers yep. showed up just unexpectedly in the first chapter of the Steve Turner book. But it made me think of Kurt Kelly and then, of course, all of the, uh, the anti-folk stuff that we went through. And interesting to hear Steve Turner talk about his love. He even covered a Clancy Brothers song on one of his solo records. Mm -hmm. So very interesting, all of this stuff, man. It's all, uh, you know what Frank Zappa termed conceptual continuity, right? It's all connected. Love it. Yeah. Okay, for my next spiel, Brant, I don't know who's on first, but... Watts on bass? Yeah, you got that right. So one release since our last episode that I caught where Mike Watt is on bass... It's actually the Il Sonio del Marineo combo. That's what with those two dudes from Italy. They've got a new 7-inch single out on Red Parakeet Records. They do three tracks exclusive to this release, one written by each band member. And it says on their band camp, it's a tribute to their beloved friend, Miles Cooper Seaton. And again, this is Red Parakeet Records. This is the same label that released that Watt and Missing Men up around the sun split earlier this year. So Hmm. very cool to see Red Parakeet putting out some more Mike Watt releases. Related to Mike Watt, though, I also wanted to mention this release. I don't think I've ever, ever mentioned this release, um, but I know I've mentioned this band before, Karate. Remember this band, Karate, that I like? Vaguely. (laughs) Vaguely. They're they're from Boston. Um, Kind of a jazzy um, post punk, I don't know, indie jazzy post punk, maybe I don't know. They're definitely kind of a late, more laid back type of band. Um, but I've always loved their stuff. Their stuff used to come out on Southern Records. Um, that's that label that actually released some No Means No releases or licensed some No Means No releases way back. And thankfully, Numero is doing a whole karate uh, re-release campaign. They're all like 
just obviously super nicely packaged on Numero. But anyways, I wanted to mention this karate release in the fish tank number 12. Mm. Now, you know that in the fish tank series, right? I sure do. Yep. Yeah. Out on Concurrent Records uh, from Holland. And it has a bunch of live CD EPs. Our favorite, I'm sure, is the No Means No one. That's That's got, like, arguably one of the best versions of The River on it, live in the studio with two drummers. Just killer. Yep. They also have releases by June of 44. There's a Sonic Youth one that I bet you have, Brant. I do. And, th- and then, of course, this Karate one. And why am I mentioning this one? It has eight tracks on it, and four of them are Minutemen covers. Dude, this is familiar. What? I think you've talked about this before. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. No, 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 no. No. Check this out. There's eight tracks on this CD. Four of them are Minutemen covers. Um, they do... <laughs> I think maybe I talked about this. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I, uh, okay, well, our listeners will tell us if one of us have, has talked about this before, but this is sounding very, very familiar. No, 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 I don't think so. Okay. I che- I, I, it's not like I went back and listened to every episode, but I did check my notes, and I don't see this anywhere. Anyways, they do uh, The Only Minority, Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs, This Ain't No Picnic, and they also do colors. Now, there are, eight, as I said, eight tracks on here. And here's what uh, the liners say. For this session, Karate wanted to play just thematic pieces, all critical of America in some way, as Jeff put it. That, of course, is uh, Jeff Farina from the band. So they did songs like Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, Bob Dylan's Tears of Rage, Mark Hollis's A New Jerusalem, and the four Minutemen up-tempo rockers. So very cool that they did four Minutemen tracks on this. I actually kind of forgot about it. I, it came up on my iPod, my ancient iPod the other day, and was like, what is this? Who is doing this Minutemen song? And I'm like, oh, yeah, Karate does four Minutemen songs. Have to mention that one. Speaking of ancient things that you own, what's with the Homestead record shirt? I'm wearing a Homestead's record shirt, big whoop. Well, it's... Yeah, it's cool. Like, where did you get that? Is it new? I've never seen you wear it before. (laughs) I don't know. I'm pretty sure I got it on, like, eBay 10 years ago for, you know, pennies. Hmm. You know, when no one really cared about it. But, yeah. Okay. Thanks. What are you wearing? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Back back to the show. I'm wearing a CBGB shirt with the sleeves cut off because I'm a punk rocker. Oh, my God. Okay. Brent, for this next segment in my spiels, I need you to take me to... The Comp Zone. Okay, so I got three comps on the SST tree, the SS tree, and I don't think I've mentioned any of these before. Three? Three comps on the SS tree that Hmm. I've never... And two of them are like SST licensed dealy bobs. So check this out. Hey, remember KTEL? I do remember. That that budget compilation, KTEL Records? Yep. You, okay. The kind that you can order off the TV. Yeah, man. Yeah. So check out this double CD from 2000 on KTEL, Gimme Indie Rock. Know this one? Uh, it looks like something I've seen, but I don't think so. Gimme Indie Rock. So check it out, man. It has five SST bands on it, and four of them 
other than the Me Puppets track, Me Puppets is licensed from Ryko Disc at this point, and we'll talk about this in the show, I bet. But the other four songs licensed from SST, Husker Du, Pink Turns to Blue, Dinosaur Jr., Little Furry Things, Minuteman, political song for Michael Jackson to sing, and Black Flag, Black Coffee, on this KTEL double CD from 2000. Is it a tie-in to the Andrew Earls book, or no relation? No relation. No, no, no. This is, well, Gimme Indie Rock is like a Sebado song. Oh. Uh, and I think that that's right. probably where this is from. Right. But check out the other bands that are on this double disc on KTEL from 2000, man. My Dad is Dead, The Wedding Present, The Fall, Pussy Galore, Mud Honey, Big Dipper, Half Japanese, Mekons, Melvins, Nikki Sudden, Eleventh uh, Dream Day, Scrawl, The Feelies, Yola Tango, Wipers, Squirrel Bait, Savage Republic, Death of Samantha. That's indie rock, all right. But like, are you sure it's the real KTEL and not just like a joke? It's KTEL Records, man. Okay. It says, this compilation, copyright 2000, KTEL International USA Inc., manufactured and distributed by KTEL. What's the address? 2605 Fernbrook Lane North, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah, I call bullshit. KTEL was Canadian, man. I don't know, man. Anyways, just let me think this is a real KTEL thing. <laughs> Anyways, it's it's cool. I was shocked to find this. But check out this other comp with some SST licensing on it. Have you ever seen this one? The DIY compilation, it's mm. called? I don't the think D- so. The DIY album, actually. And it's a DIY Hanno disc. Here's what it says on the hype sticker. The ultimate compilation, futuristic design, warp-resistant, high-fidelity sound. The first album commercially available in the U.S. using the revolutionary Hanodisc pressing process with 10 of America's best new bands. Want to hear who they are? Yeah. The Red Rockers, a.k.a. etc., Lorelei, Dreamers, Slicky Boys, Andy and the Rattlesnakes, Enemies, Mikkel Jap. Treva Spontane and the Graphics and Black Flag. What's Hanno Disc? What is that? So check it out, man. Here's Hanno Disc. So this this comp, the DIY album, it looks like it was pulled together by this guy, Jim Warsinski. He's the associate editor of DIY magazine and executive producer of the DIY Hanno Disc. This is from the 1981, this comp. Here's the big write-up in this thing, okay? Check this out. And th- this is written by Jim. The two biggest discoveries I made in 1980 was finding a new magazine being started called DIY and a new type of pressing records just perfected called the Disc process. DIY, a national magazine started in the fall of 80 by Jonathan Taylor and Chris Lampson, is a trade publication totally devoted to quote-unquote new music and up-and-coming bands and musical adventures. Full of reports from local music communities, record stores, clubs, radio stations, and companies, along with news and reviews from across the country and around the world. A true alternative to the quote-unquote straight trade magazines. It's an information source for all those involved in and supportive of the new music. A do-it-yourself publication by and for the people. Now check this out. The Hanodisc is a new way of making records that look and sound better than any other process used today. Mm-hmm. It's based around <laughs> taking 
Two specially made crystal clear record halves and joining them together while encapsulating designs and effects in the middle. Not only are the design possibilities almost endless, the records are manufactured in a way that makes them virtually warp proof, all with the sound quality as good or better than any conventional black pressing made today. The process, which large corporations attempted and failed to protect for unknown millions of dollars, was developed by English entrepreneur Mark Hanau over three hard years of research and experimentation. Along with partner Tony Randolph, Hanau is continuing his experimentation into other areas such as encapsulating laser holographic images that project out of the record under light and ones with liquids inside that change colors with the musical frequencies playing on them. An amazing man and a major step ahead for the record and promotional industries. Hmm. Yeah, the Hanno disc really took off. So if you look up Hanno disc online, there's actually not that much on it out there, but you can see that it's like a a type of picture disc hmm. that you used to be able to get. And and apparently you could have made them with liquids in them and stuff. I don't know. But anyways, check check this out. This is Jim again. Becoming involved with both parties, I set out looking for one project that would expose the industry, media, and public to these new ideas in a special way. I came up with the idea of a nationwide talent search to include a sampler of new music in a Hanno disc type pressing. Mm. After gaining support from both parties, we announced the open contest in DIY's May 81 issue and received hundreds of songs from all over the country. After listening to all the songs, myself and the four others, Mark and Tony from Hanno disc and Jonathan and Chris from DIY, we selected two songs and bands each, 10 total, to appear on the compilation album. We looked for a diversity in the selections, attempting to have a wide range of musical samples of music that is happening in the underground across America. While the new pressing process can't make a basic recording sound like a multi-million dollar production, the method transfers more of the real feel from the master tape to the record. Each song was recorded under different circumstances and budgets, ranging from top quality studios and producers to basement and garage studios with new producers. One side is straight ahead. The other is a little more varied. Guess which side the Black Flag song is on? Well, I would hope on the varied side. Uh, Nope, it's on the straight ahead side, and it's the song Six Pack. Hmm. Here's Jim again. We hope this album sparks your interest to make some of your own music and find out more about the magazine, record process, and bands involved. We are making this music available in two forms. One is a clear virgin vinyl pressing for those who just want the music, and the other is the full limited edition Hanno Disc collector version, which I don't think ever actually came out. I've only got the clear, and that's that's all that's on Discogs. Hmm. Thanks go out to all the bands involved, all those who submitted tapes, and to all the new groups brewing up music in the garages and rehearsal halls around the world. We are behind you all, for you are tomorrow's future. Whoa. Hmm. So check it out. You can hear like this special sonic version of six pack on in Hanno disc vinyl on this DIY Hanno disc ultimate compilation from 1981. Mm, highway to Hanno disc. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> um, third compilation I want to mention is this one that's out on Helter Skelter records. Have we ever talked about Helter Skelter records? Hmm. We talked about the book, Helter Skelter. Well, yeah, this really falls into the category of one episode too late because we just had Helter Stupid at our last uh, episode, Negative Land. 
Yeah. And then I, I got this CD and I actually realized I have it on 10 inch also. The 10 inch is a different version. It's an SST tie-in because Raymond Pettibone does all the artwork. On this 10 inch, it's a picture disc of Raymond Pettibone artwork and the CD, um, the jewel case actually has Pettibone artwork silk screened on it and you have to kind of have the, the insert behind it to see it. But anyways, this comp is called Coming Down Fast and it's subtitled A Gathering of Garbage, Lies and Reflections on Charles Manson. And every song on here is either a cover of a song written by Charles Manson or inspired by Manson. And then there are a bunch of write-ups in it. But there's more SST tie-in than just the Pettibone artwork and, and the Manson interest. It's on Helter Skelter Records, like I said, from 1993. Um, but check it out. Also on Helter Skelter Records, Helter Skelter actually released an EP in 1991 by Sylvia Juncosa. Mm. I'm not sure I knew that. Uh, but very cool there. And check out these other bands that are on Helter Skelter, some of which we're fans of. American Ruse, their Break It Down record is on there. There's a Rocket from the Crypt 7-inch on Helter Skelter Records. Uh, Blackbird, the Kinman mm-hmm. uh, folks, they do the uh, Class War 12-inch from 1992 on Helter Skelter. Yard Trauma's on there. There's a Down By Law single on there. Mono Man. On this Coming Down Fast CD, there is uh, Motorcycle and uh, Skullflower, uh, Eugene Chadbourne. It's like not the greatest listen, this comp, I would say. I, I definitely bought it for the Pettibone artwork, but another SST tie-in, so three on the tree in the comp zone this week. Nice. We haven't been to the comp zone for, uh, for quite some time. Yeah, so I thought, you know, we had to do a three-banger on the SST tree in the comp zone. And, by the way, this Gimme Indie Rock double CD, it's 100% on KTEL Records. I don't oh. care what you say. Okay, that's it for me. I kind of went on a bit of a long spiel this week, but I had a lot to get off my chest. Why don't you uh, you hit us with some spiels? Okay, mine's going to be a little long too, so this one's going to be spiel heavy. So like, I don't know. Sometimes people complain about the length of our spiels. Like they don't know how to use a fucking fast forward button on their <laughs> podcast player or something. <laughs> I want to I want to get some recommends, man. Okay, well, strap in. Here they come. This is a recommend, Ryan, but not for you. Iron Man... <laughs> is that ever gonna get old (laughs) apparently not okay the band is called iron man and the record's called the passage from 1994 bet you can't guess who they who the band iron man sounds like ryan uh acdc because of that iron man soundtrack (laughs) come on (laughs) straight up sabbath worship from uh gaithersburg maryland active 88 to 2018 uh, when uh, the guitarist and band leader Al Morris III passed away, age 60, unfortunately. Uh, although their first album came out in 1993, and th- this was their, and their, not, sorry, not this one wasn't their last one, but their last one came out in 2013. Everything about them screams Sabbath. In fact, you know, they, they started as a tribute band. Al plays an SG. His tone sounds exactly like Iomi's, like he's got it dialed. The riffs, the feel... He's got it all down better than anybody else kind of doing the Sabbath sound. Mm. It's good. You know, they are to Black Sabbath what like the Riverdales were to or to the to the Ramones or like Ramones. the Hanson Brothers. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, uh this is a recommend for you, Ryan. Do you know who Idris Akamur is? 
I don't. Okay, Idris Akamore and the Pyramids. I would recommend a newer album called Shaman 2020 on British label uh, Strut. Idris Akamore is a multi-instrumentalist, but primarily a saxophone player. He has a number of albums under his name, but also as a band leader for the Pyramids. Um, he mentored under Cecil Taylor and started pumping out releases with the Pyramids in the mid-70s. He's recorded sporadically over the years, uh, but he's a kind of on a late career hot streak. This is like spiritual Afro jazz, not unlike some of what Kamasi Washington has been doing or like Pharaoh oh. Sanders uh, or even Alice Coltrane. It's killer. Yeah, I want that. Yeah, you'll like it. I should have mentioned, Ryan, these are like the, uh, this is like the I section of my phone, if in case you haven't figured that out yet. Did I mention is that? It? Yeah. No, you didn't. You didn't tell me what this was. Yeah. It's all the eyes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Well, you keep telling me that I didn't finish this last time. So like, you, you know, I'm, yeah, on, you, a, I'm, you on, stopped, a I'm you, on a mission now. You stopped at like L. So, you know, you've almost, <laughs> you've almost matched yourself okay. from last time. Okay, uh, Integrity, Those Who Fear Tomorrow. Ooh, cool. Yeah, they're all-time classic from 1991. Cleveland hardcore legends with a total metal influence. But it's not crossover. It's more like what would go on to be called metallic hardcore, I guess. I first heard them on Thrasher Skate Rock Volume 9, Pawns of the Apocalypse from 1990, which is mostly hardcore and crossover and has like at least 10 bands on it that went on to become big faves for me. Just gotta love killer comps. Blast is on that one too with their with their later post SST lineup. Also, shout out to Canadian band Curious George that has an amazing track on that Pawns of the Apocalypse called Charge It. And uh, their one and only album, Children of a Common Mother, I finally found a, a copy of a few years back. Guitarist the guitarist in Curious George was Dirty Kurt Robertson. Remember him, Ryan? No, why should I know him? He was the first guitar player in the Real Mackenzies. Oh, okay. Yeah. I I never really got into Real Mackenzies. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't really. I'm not really into that. I don't know. What do you call? What do you call it? Like uh, Celtic punk or whatever. Celtic drinking punk. Yeah, That's, me me, me neither. But I mean, like the Real Mackenzies were. They toured like crazy back in the day. Oh yeah, they're road hogs, and I mean, I couldn't not see them. I yeah. saw them half a dozen times i saw um, them one time and the lineup had uh dave Gregg from doa on guitar and carl alvarez on bass at the same time wow yeah do you uh what's the lead singer's name do you remember his name shoot the lead uh, singer of the real mckenzie's yeah it's, uh it's is paul. it paul yeah. paul yeah paul McKenzie. Do you remember do you remember his band before that band i like of course i do the Enigmas. The Enigmas, yep. the Enigmas yeah. Two classic, classic Canadian 12 inches by the uh, Enigmas. Check those out. Okay, the next one, Ryan, is one that I'm sure you're into. Ike Willis, should have gone before I left. <laughs> 1987, Enigma, his debut solo album, uh, ex-Zappa guitarist and vocalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you didn't know that and you heard this record, you would definitely make the connection it's more straightforward jazzy soul rock but it's totally got some joe's garage isms in the mix yeah. uh, and there's a tie-in with this pops album it was done at the same studio oh really yep wow i didn't know that yeah, that's man. cool okay innis is the band i-n-u-s the album's called western 
Spaghettification. <laughs> <laughs> 2019 3-1-G. Not sure how I came across this, but probably because of the label it's on. If you're not familiar, it's owned and run by Justin Pearson of The Locust, Dead Cross, and a thousand other bands. Um, if you're into avant-garde, experimental, noisy bands, the stuff he puts out on 3-1-G is always worth investigating. Pretty sure Innes was from San Diego. Robert Bray from The Locust is the guitarist. They only did this one album. It's totally weird. It's just an insane album in the best way. Sounds like something like that would even come out on Ipecac, maybe, Ipecac. Or, or that that Mike Patton would be involved in. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Well, there's some pretty good ties with the Locust through Ipecac. Ryan, do you know the record "Curse" by the band Ills? I L S. I don't. Okay, write this shit down. Twenty twenty, <laughs> self released. This is a recommend for you. You are going to shit Twinkies when you hear it. Noise Rock from Portland. It's unbelievably good. Fantastic riffs. Vocalist Tom Glose totally makes the band. Check it out. Report back ASAP. I want to report on Ills, I-L-S, the, band, the album's Curse. I want it next episode. You have homework. Wow, wow okay. Yeah. Well, I'm waiting for a bunch of reports from my recommends to you, man. Where are they at? Well, I'm working my way through them. Like, what about the wildflowers? I can't believe I haven't heard about the wildflowers from well, you We're yet. not on the W section yet. <laughs> Chill. <laughs> okay. Oh, I spit on your gravy. Fruit oh, Loop yeah. City. Right, right. Yeah. There's a good tie-in. There's a tie-in. 1987, Virgin, of all labels. This is the Melbourne band that features Fred Negro. Uh, I had to check them out after watching that excellent doc on Fred called Pub that we talked about a few episodes back. Yeah. This album is hilarious, totally rocking in the way that only the Aussie bands could rock. Still can't believe this came out on Virgin. Speaks to like the magnetic quality Fred has as a front man, I would say. Not to take away from the rest of the band in any way because the songs are great. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, all the playing's great as well. Okay, Inside Out, Take You Apart, Put You Back Together, 1990, Meantime Records. I think I talked about their second album, She's Lost Her Head. Last time I probably did this, went through my phone alphabetically and likely raved about it because it just rules. This one is their debut, also really good. Detroit band, blistering hardcore, To it goes from that to like kind of off-kilter post-punk. All of it's super psychedelic. They often get paired, compared to Babes in Toyland and L7, uh, but I think that's mainly because they're like an all-woman band. To me, they remind me more of maybe Dog-Faced Hermans or something like that. Oh, cool. Either way, it's totally excellent. They deserve to be talked about way more than they are. You never hear about the band Inside Out. They were unique and I would say a cut, of, a cut above for sure. Hmm. Interesting. You know that band Dog Faced Hermans too needs a reissue campaign. Their stuff is impossible to find and way too expensive. And uh, I don't know. Those are great records that people should know more about. Agreed. Irreversible Entanglements. Open the Gates. 2021. I know I've talked about this group before. They are so awesome. And they have a new album coming out right away. I can't wait to hear it. It's like moody free jazz all of our amazing players, but what makes it stand out for me is poet Moore Mother, who just spiels these amazing poems about social justice, empowerment, kind of over top of it. It kind of, the way she spiels kind of has some 
M. Siegel uh, paper bag vibes almost. Ooh, very um, cool. But it's over top of this ripping cosmic jazz. Their new album comes out September 8th on Impulse, and it comes out the same day as the new Bushman's Revenge. So my day is like blocked off that day. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is that Bushman's, was that Rune Gramophone? I believe so, the... yeah. Yeah, yep. okay. Okay, last but not least, Ryan. Into another self-titled 1991 oh, yeah. Revelation Records. Yeah, yeah. New York post-hardcore that I'm just completely obsessed with. Not sure how this escaped me back in the early 90s. I've talked before about how I, you know, just it wasn't into Revelation, so I, you know, just didn't check this stuff out, I guess. But total oversight on my part. I was totally into, like, these metal-influenced bands that were going their own way. Bands like Prong, Voivod, Mind Over 4, Faith No More, all that kind of stuff. I put Into Another into that category. This just rules so hard. I probably just didn't listen to it because it's on Revelation, I, I'm sorry to say. Uh, the Where It Went dudes covered this record a few years back. Great interview with, if I'm remembering right, like, the entire band, or, or almost all of them. I remember the band saying in that interview they were, interview they were into all this classic rock stuff like you know Aerosmith, Kiss, Maiden, Priest, but also Bad Brains, which you can you can totally hear all of that. Richie Birkenhead is just a phenomenal vocalist, uh, guitarist Peter Moses. He shreds like Doc or Rocky George or one of those dudes. The rhythm section, Tony Bono and Drew Thomas, just exceptional. This is just so so good. Listening to it again this past week was just the reminder slash kick in the ass I need to to dig further into their catalog, especially with the Where It Went episodes to go along with them. Pretty sure they've covered the rest of their, their output or their rev output anyway. So into another. Yeah. Speaking of Revelation, I'm not sure I've mentioned this before on the show. I think I've been meaning to for a long time, but uh, have I mentioned this book series, Record Aficionado, before? I, I don't think so. Yeah, so... Record Aficionado, three volumes so far on Tumbled Leather Press. But this volume two is on Revelation Records, mm. 1987 to 1991 only. And so um, it, another great accompaniment to the Revelation catalog along with, you know, the, uh, the Where It Went podcast. And uh, I, I'm trying to flip through here. There's so many good records in here. Super Touch, Judge, oh man, Shelter, Youth of Today. Wow. Record Aficionado, Volume 2, all on Revelation Records. Right on. Whew. Ryan, we should get into this Meat Puppets record. We're like 45 minutes into this episode here already. Let's do it. History Lesson, Part 1. All right. Back with the Meat Puppets. It's been a while. Like... Over a hundred episodes, 103 episodes since we had the last release, Wavos. Yeah. So it's uh, it's been a while. It was actually really nice to listen to the Meat Puppets. Something a bit more straight ahead after a Zoogs in a Negative Land <laughs> <laughs> couple of podcasts where you you had to get really really twisted and into those releases. This one's pretty. This is a pretty easy listen. You know, not very. Uh, uh, not as confounding as the prior two, I would say. Yeah. Um, should I give you a quick rundown of all of our Meat Puppets episodes? Sure, man. Okay, so just quickly, we started off at episode nine with the self-titled 
Me Puppets, episode 19, Me Puppets 2. 39 was Up on the Sun. 44 was the In a Car single. 49 was the Out My Way record. On episode 100, we had Derek Bostrom on for the Mirage record. And as I said, 150, the last Me Puppets episode was Huevos. And now here we are at 253. And, uh, you know, it's a bit, like I said, a bit of a controversial record for the band, for the fans. I was digging it this week. I'm not sure if I'm ever going to be as big of a fan of the Me Puppets as yourself, but I was digging it this week, actually. Yeah. Their sixth and final full length for SST. Right? Yeah. So I have the front page of the SST press kit, Ryan. So I'm going to read that for you. And if you, if I'll hold it up so you can see it, it kind of has this monsters written in like the famous monsters font, you know, like the misfits font or something. The monsters. It yeah. looks like the monsters almost. Well, it's from like famous monsters magazine, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Announcing the latest creation from the meat puppets, like the, Classic monsters of myth and legend, the new Meat Puppets album is destined to withstand the fickle ravages of time and fate and to maintain a firm hold on fandom's collective consciousness, infiltrating the darker corners of its subconscious in the process. Monsters is like the Meat Puppets themselves. Since their beginnings in Phoenix, Arizona almost a decade ago, this quixotic trio... Kurt Kirkwood on guitar and vocals, his his brother Chris on bass and vocals, and Derek Bostrom on drums, has flown in the face of convention, leaving in their wake a legion of rabid followers and a catalog of chameleon-like recordings. Making no bones about their desire to be heard by everyone, the Meat Puppets' musical journey has embraced just about every style possible, from punk rock to country and folk to jazz, funk, heavy metal, romantic ballads, and even a a nod or two at the classics, confounding pigeonholers at the same time. In the last few years, the group has concentrated on building their following and perfecting their stage act, spending as much as half the year on the road. Like so many great bands, the Meat Puppets welcome a long string of continuous dates as a chance to let the material evolve naturally. Consequently, each show is unique unto itself. This induces people to follow the trio from town to town, especially on the coasts, much to the amusement of the band, who've grown accustomed to seeing many of the same faces night after night. Last winter, the Meat Puppets began recording their strongest album yet. Sequestered for months in a studio near Disneyland, the band endeavored to combine the precision of Mirage with the power of Huevos. With the fruition of this new hybrid, it's clear that this time the Meat Puppets have truly created a monster. People have been buzzing about this project since its inception, and if the talk and the reactions to their awesome live show is any indication, not only could this be their year, the 90s could become the decade of the puppet. Whoa. So, you know, on previous episodes, we've kind of heard about their ups and downs with SST. They, you know, they definitely, I would say, had a hot and cold relationship over the years, um, going all the way back to Meat Puppets 2 and Up on the Sun when they kind of got all that critical acclaim and there were some accusations of, of jealousy where Black Flag would kind of slag them in the press a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the delay in, re in releasing Mirage really, 
I think, put them off a little bit. Um, in Greg Prado's book, Too High to Die, Meet the Meat Puppets, which I'll be talking about throughout the episode, Kurt is quoted as saying they started looking to sign to a major label as early as 1986, but they couldn't get anyone, get anyone to bite. In a piece on his website, DerekBostrom.net, uh, Derek has a, a, a piece he wrote in 2012 called Monsters Studio Sessions that kind of brings us up to speed on what the pups were up to in 88-89. So he's kind of talking about how hard they toured in the mid to late 80s um, in the secondhand RV that they, that they toured around in. And by this point, they're kind of getting burnt out. The grind was wearing us down with no new product to promote in 1988 attendance at our shows was dropping. He says, we fought with everyone, our label, our booking agent, club employees, each other, sometimes even with the fans. We were exhausted. We'd been living hand to mouth for far too long, playing too many piddly shit gigs for too little money. We were squandering our reputation and burning ourselves out. Kurt finally told us he couldn't take anymore. During a break from touring, we cut a new demo and for the first time in years, beat the bushes for major label interest. A couple label reps came out to some shows, but none took the bait. In the end, Kurt had no choice but to deal once again with SST. During a visit to California, he cut a rough version of The Void using Greg's new drum machine. So The Void is, is on this album. Yep. He's obviously, obviously talking about Greg Ginn. Probably not the last time we'll we'll hear that particular drum machine on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, uh, he liked the results. I'd been pushing to use a drum mis- drum machine on our next record, wanting a more level playing field against the rest of the mid '80s rock world already on the sequencer bandwagon. I was tired of comping along in the background and wanted the chance to actually compose my parts. So here, here's kind of how he, he did the drums for this record. Yeah, I read that too. That's such a weird perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I'm the drummer. I'm pushing for electronic drums so that you can do more composition. Yeah. So he says, First I laid down a basic kick and snare pattern on drum pads playing along with Kirk to a click track. So we saw this on Mirage, right? He's playing, he's playing pads. Then the brothers came in one at a time and overdubbed their own bass, guitar, and vocals. After they finished their parts, I composed my fills using the drum machine keyboard. Finally, I added live cymbals, replacing the click track with a real hi-hat. The strategy suited us well, for at the time, we were barely speaking to each other. I don't think all three of us were ever all in the studio at the same time. So basically, he's playing the drums on pads, doing the the fills all on like a drum machine basically and you can totally hear that and then adding in uh, a hi-hat and like a ride i think that must have taken like way longer than just getting a a good a good cut you know yeah. <laughs> like a good that must like to get one good take on drums let's I don't know. I mean, I'm not a drummer and I know it can be really hard, but let's say you got it in the first 10 attempts. I got to think it would be way more laborious to do it this way with all of the, the Lynn drum machine and composing on a keyboard and then overdubbing acoustic cymbals over top. Yeah. 
here's Derek again from that same piece. The finished product had a calculated hair metal sound to it. Not sure I agree with that. Just to make sure nobody missed the point, we added entirely too much reverb. The songs were pretty basic, and the poetry was stingy by Meat Puppet standards. Mostly Kurt just wanted to rock out. He didn't want to be bothered by the rest of it. The album is hampered by our crappy self-production and the leaden mechanical drum tracks. The best songs eventually found life on stage. Light, Attack by Monsters, and Touchdown King became concert staples. So here's... I'd have to agree with that. I mean, I when I was listening to it this week, I'm like, man, I just love to hear these tracks with acoustic drums and without the keyboards. So I dialed up some live versions, and they're so much better. Yeah. Here's Kurt from the Greg Prado book. For Monsters, we went back up to L.A. to Dr. Dream Studios. The engineer's name was Eric. I forget his last name. I think there's a connection between No Doubt and Dr. Dream Studios. Like No Doubt, the band he's talking about. I may be wrong. It was out in Anaheim and kind of a departure from being over at Total Access where we had done earlier records. By this time, I was into bad hair metal. And this was one of those ironic artistic moves that I think that I thought was really spiffy. But who knows if anybody got it. I think there are some really cool songs on there but we used a Lin drum, so the drums are all totally programmed. We tried to make another break stylistically. It's always been one of those things, for better or worse, to try and make albums sound different than the last one, like it's almost a different band. And it's not a conscious attempt, it's just that you get into so much stuff every year, it winds up sounding different. So being into Def Leppard, I liked those Mutt Lang Def Leppard albums. I, I like the connection to Queen-style vocals and that slick blit, Brit rock sort of thing, mixed with the silliness of the hair metal. It was always sort of a semi-conscious attempt to upset people who are really into the band. Oh, really? You like us? Try this one out. You thought you liked us when we were as cool as the Velvet Underground, but are we as cool as Def Leppard? <laughs> We came from the punk rock ghetto. So what do you have to lose? And here's here's Chris. On Monsters, that's all Lindrum. Derek was in on the pro- in on the programming of some of it, and some of that shit is strictly me and Kurt. You take the boom bap boom bap boom bap rhythm of Derek, which he's intense so intensely good at, and just slow it up and speed it down. And we'll just put a little of us in there. And the guy who engineered that is this dude, E, Eric or whatever, <laughs> whatever the fuck Eric's last name is. And he was, he was Pat O'Brien's grandson, the actor in Newt Rockin' All-American. I don't know what that is. Do you know? No. He had a studio in Orange County and, and we put that record together. So E. Ryan is Eric Garten, who uh, went by E. We've for sure seen him before he remixed the Bad Brain Spirit Electricity record. Uh, we'll for sure see him again. I know Gin used him quite a bit later on for some of his records. He was kind of a house producer engineer, I think, for Dr. Dream Records, and I believe the label owned the studio he used, which was based out of Orange, California. Hmm. The studio was known as Advanced Media Systems and later changed to For the Record, which is what it was called at this point. 
Some of Swa's Winter was also done there, I believe the bass and vocals. So just to clarify, here's what Derek told me by email. I, I specifically asked him about the drums. They are electric drums. All the cymbals are real performances. I played kick and snare on pads and actual cymbals and a hi-hat. Then I went in and made any adjustments to the beat that I needed. Then I played the tom fills on the drum machine. So all the drums are performed, not programmed. Then they were edited as needed. So like the tom fills, like he's he's hitting those on a on yep. a keyboard, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can you can I mean it is a performance for sure. It's the sound and the way it's just weird to play it with your fingertips. Yeah. Rather than <laughs> with drumsticks, right? Yeah, the the so like the two most common thoughts you hear about this release is that it's kind of Kurt's shred album or is like his rock god album. Uh, they certainly look like rock gods during this era, super long hair. Uh, the other is the idea that they were going to try and create something that a major label would be interested in and and that that didn't pan out and so you know they they kind of ran out of time and uh, ended up releasing it on SST. Yeah, there's a spiel about that in Jim Rulin's book. Okay, well, hit me. Yeah. So Jim Rulin's book, Corporate Rock Sucks. Here's a spiel on the uh, the Monsters record. It's in a section talking about wanting to leave SST records. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, Jim Ruland on the Me Puppets. The Me Puppets also wanted out. After the release of Huevos and Mirage in 1987, the band was worn down from so many years on the road and more than a little discouraged to see bands like Soundgarden blowing up on MTV. The Meat Puppets recorded its next record, Monsters, with the intention of getting off of SST and onto a major label. Here's Derek Bostrom. So we went with the big, ugly-sounding reverb and electronic drums and the big, anthemic chorus crap. Monsters is a Frankenstein-esque fusion of over-the-top riffs, tinny drums, and prog country crooning, like ZZ Top on Acid. The band didn't have much luck wooing the majors and sent off the record to SST. Suddenly, Peter Kepke, who started the alternative department at Atlantic, reached out to the band. He was interested in the album and wanted to sign the Meat Puppets for what Kurt characterized as a huge amount of money. Kurt called up SST to explain the situation, but Ginn was remarkably unsympathetic. Quote, no, you're a traitor, you give it to us, Ginn told Kurt. Ginn refused to budge and insisted that the record come out on SST. The Meat Puppets tried to negotiate a deal that would allocate a sizable portion of the advance from Atlantic to SST, but Ginn wasn't interested. So yeah, they were definitely trying to use this recording session to find a major, uh, but they only got major label interest a bit too late after they had cut a deal with SST and Ginn wouldn't let them out. Yeah, uh, they still used it, right, to to shop to, to majors once it was out on SST. Uh, here's Mike Kemp, VP of Music Development at MTV from the liner notes of the uh, Rykodisc reissue of this, this record. By the time of Monsters, the Pops not only had decided that singing in tune wasn't tantamount to selling out, 
but they'd locked into a musical groove that would define their subsequent major label output and ultimately change the course of popular music. It was on this record that Kurt Kirkwood pit his spacey, Jerry Garcia-influenced lead guitar flourishes against his chunky ZZ Top-style rhythm in a way that successfully married the cockeyed ambience of the band's desert surroundings to the controlled roar of arena rock. That the puppets managed to pull off this seemingly contradictory sonic feat without forsaking their warped punk rock attitude speaks to the schizophonic nature of their tastes. Three years later, Nirvana would take this new sound to the top of the charts. If you put if you put this album into historical context, there seems to be reason behind the puppet's decision to pull out all the stops and crank up their amps to 11. Anyone who ever attended one of the band's scorching mid-80s club gigs knows that Kirk Kirkwood always secretly wanted to be an arena rock guitar god in the vein of Jimmy Page or Jeff Beck. But having come up in the indie rock scene, he chose to couch his freak flag in drawl irony. In a cover story, Ryan, from Goldmine Magazine from April 1995, uh, writer Steve Roser goes through the entire history of the band, and uh, here's the part on when, when he gets to Monsters. The Meat Puppets didn't make an album in 1988, but by then had quite a back catalogue available because of their seven years with SST. They were fairly well known in the underground music circles across the U.S. Their loyal fans loved them. They routinely won the respect of most music critics and, in more than a few instances, unmitigated acclaim. As with most, most bands labeled alternative in that era, what eluded them were fame and fortune. If you were to ask the typical MTV viewer during Ronald Reagan's final year as president for an opinion on the meat puppets, the response you would have most likely gotten is, the what? <laughs> for many, many years, Kurt said, it was real easy, although we didn't make very much money. It was more of a straight shot where you, could, you would just put out a record, go out and do it, and nobody had shit to say about it. Monsters in 1989 was the last album the Meat Puppets made for SST. On their own terms, the band had been a success in the 1980s, but they had to think about the future. The press was going like, oh, the Meat Puppets, they're backsliding. They're never going to get signed, Bostrom said. And we were like, oh yeah, we're supposed to get signed? Obviously, we started out as this scruffy punk band doing it for ourselves. We weren't really looking to make it big. But we had kind of grown to love what we were doing and wanted to stick with it. And we found, as in a lot of businesses, that to, st that to stay in place was to move backwards. And we really were expected to sign up and get with the program. Meanwhile, the drummer said, on the other side, the alternative movement, the indie movement, was getting noticed by the major labels. They were be beginning to sign up bands and labels. And soon, the indie network that we had helped set up us and dozens and dozens of other bands was beginning to crumble because there was no product that was good. Bands were not going to indie labels anymore, and so the old network couldn't be supported by the acts that were ju just doing it for fun or whatever. All the good stuff was going to the majors. All the big stars, the Husker Du's replacements, etc., were like no longer there. We were just making ends meet. We decided to do monsters with more of an idea of trying to get signed. So we made that record, sent it out to record companies, and got a got a bunch interested. So like 
I've heard Derek talk about this before in interviews and stuff, you know, about how the mass exodus of indie bands to major labels made everything harder for the indie bands in terms of leverage almost. Yeah. Um, the indies used, you, you know, were able to leverage the bigger bands to get records in stores or to get tours and, you know, for the newer or lesser known bands. But once the indie bands, or indie labels lost all of the, the bigger bands, they lost that leverage, even to get, you know, paid from distributors. There's a piece uh, from Pulse magazine by Brett Milano from November uh, 1989, and it's reprinted in the, the Ryko reissue. Here's what it says. Monsters came within a hair of being the Meat Puppets' major label debut, with Atlantic grabbing for the record right until the release date. Negotiations fell through at the last minute, and SST got to keep the band, but Atlantic apparently still wants the next album, and the ones after that. Which leaves the Meat Puppets feeling more than a little confused. How does a band deal with the major label runaround when they've gotten used to doing everything themselves? from the playing and the production to the album cover designs. Beats the hell out of me, says Kirkwood. There's probably a genuine interest at Atlantic, but we need to view it realistically. We've been at this a long time, and the Atlantic offer is the first we've had from a real label. I'm not accepting it, and at this point, I really don't know why. There's a possibility that we'll still wind up there. All I can say is what SST President Greg Ginn said that if the Atlantic thing is meant to happen, it will. In some ways, the last year has been very hard, Kirkwood continues. I'm sure you can see that every band that's ever opened for us is getting signed and going on to bigger and better things, and we're still playing at the same clubs. Everybody's always asking us when we're going above ground. I still don't know if it would be a good thing for us to go with a major. That's too bad that that was so distracting mm-hmm. back back then, hey? Yeah. Yeah, it's not the first time we've heard a band really struggle with, you know, expectations. Yeah. Here's uh, from the Greg Prado book, kind of expanding on or reiterating what you kind of read from uh, Jim Rulin's book. Here's Kurt. I made Monsters. I gave it to SST. And right then, Atlantic came in and offered me a lot of money for it, a huge amount of money for it. I talked to Greg and was like, I mean... I had split up with Cinda and I was taking care of two households at the, at the time, my own and my kids. I was completely strapped. I was like, oh wow, Eureka. But Greg was like, no, you're a traitor. You gave it to us. And I was like, well, how about if you go in on a deal with them? Let's just put this thing out on Atlantic and we'll split the front money or whatever, or do whatever to make it work. And he's like, well, I might talk to them, but he wouldn't seriously talk to them. He wasn't very understanding about my personal situation. In fact, he made light of it. Was like, we know why you need to do this deal. I'm like, yeah, because I've got kids. You're trying to say that I fucked it up? It pissed me off. So I said, give it back. I only gave it to you to look at. He sued me for libel. The thing is, I never signed a contract for any of those records. I wouldn't do it. I was like, you believe in punk rock? That's... That's your deal? Major labels suck? No contract? How about that? You can put them out. And I started to look at the business and realized, oh, what about the publishing? Everything is on Sestone. I started studying what publishing was. I had always been naive. Oh, Lennon and McCartney? Looks cool behind the songs. 
I always put Kurt Kirkwood and then I realized, oh, there's something to that. That's a thing. There's revenue there. And I started realizing they do this with every band. So I started talking to some other SST bands. And then, you know, there's quotes here from Lee Ronaldo, Grant Hart, uh, Jim from Dos Domin, Mike Watt, kind of talking about their deals with SST. Okay, here's an article I found from 1989. Uh, New, New Zealand writer Graham Reed, which I found on his Elsewhere blog. It's called Disney Avant Metal Rock. Okay, so he's asking them about um, why they still haven't broken the surface in the way you might expect, is what he says. Well, that's a very tender subject, says Kirkwood, then talks openly about his annoyance with SST and the lack of distribution and promotional clout a small label has. The Puppets and SST have both been hurt by rumors the band were going to sign with a major label and break out, break out much like R.E.M., a useful reference point for their similarly cultish following and regional hero status with the Monsters album. Kirkwood admits that he took the tapes of Monsters to a lot of different companies who had been sniffing around. But a rumor they had already signed a big deal put them offside with SST, so it was back to SST with the album which Kirkwood says has best captured their live energy. I vacillated between anger and temperance because when we tour, people tell us they can't get a record, so I say bad things about SST. But then there you are down in New Zealand and you've got the album and it has only been out in the States about six weeks, so maybe it's all right. But I still think distribution is a problem. They don't think so and say, well, sue us. If they distributed better and sold more albums, we could afford to. It just goes around like that. Mm. Okay, so here's Derek from the, the Monsters piece on his blog, kind of, you know, about what happened after they delivered record uh, the Monsters record. We began our preparations for yet another season in the RV, but a funny thing happened. Atlantic Records offered us and SST a nice sum for the rights to release the album, but Greg wouldn't even consider giving it up. They had planned their whole season around the release and everything was already printed and pressed. Both sides dug in. Suddenly, it became a lot harder to get everybody, somebody from either label on the phone. Monsters was a flop, poorly promoted and poorly received. We went out for another round of shitty gigs. This time around, all the opening acts had major label albums. While their promo teams beat a path to their dressing rooms, we were selling handmade t-shirts for gas money. We couldn't even find our records in stores. We felt screwed. It was around this time when rumors began to circulate that we were finished, and the rumors weren't far from true. I hardly even felt like I was in a band anymore. Nothing but inertia kept, kept me going. That and the desire to see how the story was going to end. I didn't want to give Chris and Kurt the satisfaction of giving up before they did. I stopped smoking grass that summer and spent most of my time trying to make sense of our disastrous finances. When a major label contract finally arrived in summer 1990, it was a predictably shitty deal. But it was a lifeline and we grabbed it. What choice did we have? But that was a tough tour for us. Though we were trying to support Monsters, our relationship with our label SST was effectively over. While other bands outpaced us, we sat in major label limbo waiting for our ship to come in. The tour itself 
began to resemble an episode of America's Most Wanted. We re returned home flat broke. So here's, here's Derek from a piece he wrote for the Alive in the 90s DVD. Uh, which is about the move to, to London Records, which was a division of Polygram. January 1990 found the Meat Puppets in a definite career slump. Though our long deteriorating relationship with SST had finally collapsed under the weight of mutual acrimony, we had no clear path to the next level. We'd had no luck in landing a deal with a major record label despite years of trying. In fact, only one company, Atlantic Records, had shown any real interest in signing us. Those talks had stalled. However, when our contact at the label quit and moved back home to Azerbaijan after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we couldn't help but feel discouraged and a little desperate. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary and we had no money, few prospects, and the gnawing fear that we just might have reached the end of the line. But a couple of weeks later, we got a call from another executive Atlantic who invited Kurt to meet with him in New York. There, over a piece of chocolate cake, he revealed his plans to head, head up the newly activated U.S. division of London Records for the Polygram label. While he assured Kurt of a contract, he also warned that if it would be at least six months before his plans were in place. We spent that spring and summer playing locally, borrowing, borrowing money from friends, anything to keep from going broke. Finally, we got a massive stack of legal documents in the mail. The contract was the kind of standard agreement new bands always get. That is to say, it was grossly in inequitable. So the album they ended up putting out, 1991's Forbidden Places, is totally killer. Um, I mean, they've never put out a bad record, in my opinion. They've just, you know, they're all good. They've gone on to release eight more studio albums and a few live ones. Uh, by the late 90s, both Chris and Derek left the band. Uh, Derek kind of became the keeper of the band's legacy through his blog, um, the website. He's clearly the band's archive guy. Uh, he was essentially in charge of the Ryko Disc reissue campaign in 1999. Derek also released a 7-inch under the moniker Today's Sounds. The EP is called Songs of Spiritual Uplift as Sung by Today's Sounds. It's all covers, uh, all vocals and instruments by Derek. I believe you used to be able to hear it on his blog along with some demos, but it's, it's not up anymore. I don't have it. Chris, unfortunately, had some well-documented substance abuse uh, and legal problems. Uh, if I won't get into it here, but if you want to read more about how bad it got, there's a piece from the uh, from the Dallas Observer by David Holthouse, circa 1998. Uh, you can find it online. It's called Too High, period, if, <laughs> if that gives you any indication about what happened. Yeah. Uh, he was eventually sentenced to 21 months in prison. Uh, while he was inside, he thankfully got clean. Kurt released one more album as Meat Puppets, 2000's underrated Golden Lies, and then it went on to form the groups Eyes Adrift, Volcano, uh, as well as releasing the excellent solo album Snow, all of which I know we've talked about on the show before. They're all great. Chris and Kurt reformed the band and released several excellent albums, some of the best of their career in my opinion, and then in 2018 Derek rejoined the band. 
Uh, we'll be seeing them again, Ryan, also one more time on the show, at least, maybe on a comp or two, but for sure on episode 265 for SST's No Strings Attached, the Meat Puppets Anthology. Also, if you're looking for more pups, uh, here's a few recommends. Derek Bostrom and Elmo Kirkwood have a brand new podcast called Open Mouse Syndrome. At the time we're recording this, they've released two episodes, probably more by the time you're hearing it. Uh, I mean, if you've ever heard an interview with Derek Bostrom, the man can talk and spin a yarn. I'm talking like Mike Watt level. And uh, you can definitely tell Elmo Kirkwood grew up with uh, Kurt Kirkwood as a dad and Chris Kirkwood as an uncle. He's a deep thinker and, and has kind of their unique outlook on the world. When you listen to it, you can just imagine what it would be like hanging out in the Meat Puppets van or whatever, or going on a road trip with them or backstage. Also, you can head over to Derek's Bandcamp. There's some interesting stuff to check out there. Uh, there's a jam with him and Chris and Rob Stabinski, the genius keyboardist in the, the current lineup of the Pups. The description calls it an epic prog rock send-up and references uh, Frank Zappa. He and Chris also have a cover of the Meat Puppet song Hot Pink from Up on, Up on the Sun. That's a cool listen. And then there's this project they call the Eudemonics, and it's an album called Best Behavior. It's all improvised. It's Chris, Derek, Elmo, and Ron. It's pretty jazzy and psychedelic. It's a cool listen. And they also recently announced the formation of a new project with Chris, Derek, and Elmo called Happy Universe. They're playing some shows, and they, they plan to record. And here's hoping for a new Pups record. Dusty Notes was so good, I, I really hope we get a follow-up with the current lineup. Let's get into this Monsters record, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. All right, so before we dive into the tracks, Brent, I am interested, where does this record stack up for you? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, There's some good songs on it, but it's probably, I, I hate to say it, like, one of my least favorite of the SST era. Is that right, hey? Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, I, I get it. I get it. Um, I feel like there are songs on here that are so strong that they kind of shine through some of the uh, the production. Yeah, um, it's not even the production for me, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like when I went looking for some live versions of these songs, just so much better. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah, I have a few spiels about that when we when we get through the record about some of the live stuff. Uh, Monsters was released in October of 89 on CD, LP, and cassette. All songs, obviously, by Kurt Kirkwood. Well, not obviously. Chris did some writing on some other albums. Uh, but these are, it says on this record, all songs Kurt Kirkwood. So, track one, side one, Attacked by Monsters. I'll start by just addressing the drum machine, Ryan. There are albums that I had no idea were drum machines or pads or whatever until I read about it somewhere later on, especially if it came out in the 80s and the, you know, with the production values back then, who knows, right? Some are way more obvious than this one. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, if you weren't paying attention, you might not notice that these are Lin drums uh, some of the things that are the most obvious are the weird like horn synths and stuff throughout the album. That's a little bit more obvious than the drums at times. Yeah. Yeah. I So by the time I heard this record, I already knew that these were, pro, you know, not real drums or whatever. And uh, 
So it's, I don't know. That's never really bothered me. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are elements of this record though, that I like all over the place. Cause it's, it's kind of like, it still sounds like ZZ top ish, but it kind of gets a bit doom ZZ top in places. Can I say that? Doom sure. ZZ yeah. top. You can yeah. say that. This track reminds me in places of like Soundgarden, this opening track, Attack by Monsters. Yeah, the, you know, the drum sounds to me are most obvious when they, when you hear the fills. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the tom sounds are kind of a giveaway, I would say. Plus, you know, the hi-hat, the, the live hi-hat is usually covering up the snare sound. This song, I've always loved it. You know, the shredding, the tapping, the riff. The lyrics, Snakey is awakey and he wants a little piece of the pie. <laughs> <laughs> I did ask Derek if he has any insight into the kissing dogs lyric in the chorus. I asked if it was a reference to, to something or an inside joke and he said, I have often wondered this myself. I'm not even convinced that that's actually what he's saying, Ryan, to be, to be honest. It, that's what it says on the lyric sheet kissing dogs but that's not what it sounds like he's saying so I don't, I don't know the yelling at the end of the track is Kurt double tracked according to Derek just a throwaway at the end of the takes is what he says in the Ryko disc liner notes Derek talks about this track um, saying that when the band listened to the first test pressing of the record Kurt decided he didn't like the final mix of this song so he replaced it with the rough mix so what you're hearing on this record is the rough mix. Here's Kurt Kirkwood from the Greg Prado book about this song. He says, Attack by Monsters is a ripoff of Kokomo, a song by the Beach Boys. Basically, I had this Black Sabbath sort of riff. I started singing that in the same sort of cadence. Track two is called Light. Um, this keyboard sound you hear at the, the beginning, I asked Derek if he knew if that was a keyboard or a guitar guitar synth. We did see those on Mirage. He wasn't sure. He said, I always thought it was a keyboard, probably one at the studio, but not one belonging to us. I also asked him about the hand claps you can hear in this song. I assumed they were done on the drum machine, but he said they're real hand claps. <laughs> <laughs> I also hear an acoustic guitar on this one. With kind of hel It kind of helps with that percussive sound. You can hear like a really thin pick kind of keeping time. I have that written down too, for sure. Yeah. The keyboard sounds on this song are definitely of the era, especially when they pop back in in the middle. It sounds like a, like a horn section or a horn setting on the keyboards. Like that's what they're supposed to sound like or whatever. Oh, yeah. It sounds like, like Knights of the Round Table yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, trumpet shots or something. It's, yeah. it, it's really weird. I mean... This is one of the better songs yeah. on the rack on the record for me, and they'd made a video. It's on the Ryko re-release. I mean, you can see it on YouTube, but check out a live version of this song from even, you know, not that long ago. Yeah, you know, with the reformed band, it's just so killer, man. It's a great, it's a great song. Those horns, though, ah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, if you can look past that stuff, it's a really good song that actually would have fit really well on Up on the Sun musically. The yeah. video, uh, it's cool. There's like some nature scenes of like cacti and clouds, like shot from an airplane with some footage of the band just going off live, just looking like the rock gods that they are. Chris is playing like a headless Ibanez or something like that. Yeah. 
Kurt, <laughs> Kurt's playing as Les Paul. Kurt's wearing like the tightest ball hugging jeans I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, they weren't eating that much, right? Yeah. Kids <laughs> were pretty tight jeans. Yeah. The, uh, right away though, on this second track, the harmony vocals mm-hmm. between the brothers are just an amazing, right? You can kind of tell how they're trying to get a little mutt lang. Yep. You know, with the backing vocals, but I, I'm digging it. Well, even the guitars are totally layered. Yeah. Yep. Okay, the next one is Meltdown. Back into rock mode with the with the riff and the pick slides. Great tone on the guitars. Chris is playing, I noticed throughout this album, is a little more straightforward on these songs. Like, you know, he's he's playing like rhythmically with the in like syncopation with the drums, which I suppose is what a bass is supposed to do. But no, nah, man, it's total dusty. It's, yeah, it's dusty inspired, don't you think? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, like his playing isn't as busy, I guess, is what I'm saying as some of the other stuff we've seen. Yeah. On this track, for me, it's one of the ones though where that real compressed production on the drums actually does jump out at you a bit more than some of the other tracks. There's a little bit more space in this. I don't know if that's because there's less layers of the other instruments Hmm. Uh, track four is in love love the harmonizing guitar licks on this one very classic rock lots of guitar overdubs on this song like Kurt really layered them Um, and they have a really like di sound to me like they weren't miking amps but going straight into some sort of audio interface that's what it sounds like to me di direct input yeah Yeah. for sure super doomy tone for me though like this is like a saint vitus guitar tone for me almost at the outset um and it's it's kind of sped up though but if you slowed this riff down this is a vitus track for me and then it it goes you know you mentioned those uh harmony uh guitar solos it's kind of like is that almond brothers or doobie brothers something like that yeah which which brothers does that kind of shit is that the almond or the doobies yeah it's almost yeah both not the doobie brothers there's cowbell (laughs) there's cowbell in this track though isn't there oh is there i didn't pick that out there's something like that or maybe it's woodblock maybe Mm. that's what it is it's weird i guess this is understandable considering kurt was writing the lion's share of the material and you know it was always the same three dudes playing it uh you know but whatever kind of style they were going for on each album and i mean they're all different they always sound like the meat puppets like other than the production uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you could make a comp tape with stuff from all of their SST albums, and it it would sound cohesive. I think. I guess we'll we'll, we'll test get, that we'll, out. We'll test right it out right away. Yeah. No strings attached. Yep. Okay, track five is the void. So so this one interesting is interesting. Derek talks in the in the Ryko disc liner notes about um, you know about how this song is the this is like the demo that they did with Greg Ginn's mm. drum machine. They didn't re-record it. This is the 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 demo that Kurt did to kind of test test this out to see if it would work. This track kind of creates a cool mood that suits the, the kind of suits the the name, the void, with the riff and the s- swirling psychedelic licks going on throughout the song, and the heavy effects on the vocals, that kind of dreamy section in the middle. Uh, it's all also the longest song, six and a half minutes. For me, man, I don't know why, but when I was listening to this song this time around, it sounded just super funky to me. Like it could have been like a an early to mid era 
Red Hot Chili Peppers song <laughs> almost. You know what I put? Uh, I put Living Color actually is yeah, what it made me think of. It's it's got some funky. Uh, there's a shreddy wah wah solo for sure too, and then there's also these parts that are kind of like again Soundgarden-y type of riffs. Um, it's but it's still very distinctively the Meat Puppets. You know, I'm just hearing these other references. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a standout for me. For sure. Okay, flipping it over to Touchdown King. Kurt has a spiel about this in the Greg Prado book about how he just thought it would be funny to write a song from first-person standpoint about being like this hero, you know, football player. When they're like not even into sports. Yeah, yeah. Like the lyrics are like, the air is energy whenever he's around with bolts of lightning from the ground. This is a really bouncy song. A really tasty guitar run that I put almost sounds like Skinner or the Allman Brothers. All of Kurt's playing is always so so you know so good. He really is a guitarist's guitarist, I would say. You know. Yeah. Underappreciated. Like you probably would know in in kind of flipping through guitar magazines over the years. Like, does he ever get any cred in like Guitar World? He was in Guitar Player magazine, like around this time yeah yeah okay like guitar for the practicing musician or whatever yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he def- definitely should have been for sure the vocal harmonies on this track are so good yeah nice extended guitar workout for the last two and a half minutes of the song too mm-hmm. okay the next one is party till the world obeys no clue what's up at the start of this almost sounds like kurt maybe going through his pedal board or something I thought they were like whale sounds that he's getting on his guitar. Yeah, I thought it was like a slide going up and down on just a single string with some yeah. space echo on it or something. It's a weird song, but it's cool. And um, it, for me, it's the runner-up for best song title on the album. <laughs> Party Till the World Obeys? Yeah. Yeah. The the winner for best song title is coming up next, Flight <laughs> of the Fire Weasel. <laughs> I was going to say maybe the worst, but yeah. go for it. This is this song is like full-on Motorhead for me. Yeah. So the Ryko reissue has some bonus tracks on it, and it's got uh, Flight of the Fire Weasel Part 1 and Flight of the Fire Weasel Part 2. Derek says in the liners that this song is kind of a combination of those two different songs. Part 1 was from 87 and Part 2 was from 88. And you can totally hear that when you listen to the, the bonus tracks. So when I say that this reminds me of Motorhead, this song, would it shock you to know that I have never owned a single Motorhead record? No, it would not shock me to know that. I think it's pathetic, but... (laughs) (laughs) So, but is it... Am I I even close, though? Like, does this sound... It just sounds like Ace of Spades to me or something, right? Not really. Not to me. Oh, come on. Yeah. Uh, It's just a blazing instrumental workout from Kurt. Uh, he just lets loose with both barrels, just a total fret melter if I've ever heard one, you know? Yeah. The next one is Strings on Your Heart, another total meat puppet sounding song, just has that classic signature sound to it. This one's for people who say that Kurt can't sing or whatever, you know, like they criticize his vocals. It's total bullshit. The guy can sing his ass off. Yeah. Definite shredding throughout though, hey, this track? Mm Mm-hmm. And then the last track is Like Being Alive. This is another one that Derek said Kurt liked the the rough mix better after hearing the test pressing, so they swapped it out. 
he he talks about how he says something like Kurt always liked the rough mixes better, but he never he never like did this on any of their other albums. You know, change them out. And I asked him about the the last line in the song about the giant doo-doo log or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't in the the other mix. So they took it out, so Oh. Yeah. Thank goodness. We got some Rudy poops in there with some do- <laughs> some doo-doo logs. Yeah. When I hear doo-doo log, it just makes me think of uh Napoleon Murphy Brock from Zappa's band. He's always talking about doo-doo. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> This is just a psychedelic burnout to, to end the album for sure. So the Ryko reissue has three more songs, that, the two Fire Weasel songs that I just talked about, and a song called Wish Upon a Storm, which Derek calls Lovely But Gloomy, and uh, says it's the only song from the demo that they didn't end up recording for the album, and it, which is too bad because it's actually a really cool song. It is. It's a sleeper, though. The first you know minute or so you're kind of like eh, i don't know i can see why they left it off yeah but the bridge in the chorus is totally intense and hooks you in yeah here's derek uh in the Ryko disc he says we were very pleased with the final album we even kept the electronic drumming a secret to see if anyone noticed not only did no one notice but some people even said that monsters was the livest sounding album we'd done yet <laughs> This was particularly ironic, given that it was Huevos, not Monsters, that was recorded almost entirely live in the studio. It's amazing. Uh, here's a few other reviews that I found, Ryan. Some are good, some some not good. Greg Cott in the Chicago Tribune from December 21st, 1989, gave it three and a half stars. He called it the band's most focused and professional sounding effort yet and said the album courts the mainstream without succumbing to it. Here's Greg Prado from All Music. Some of the songs are hindered by synth textures and the fact that the songs were recorded one instrument at a time, which mutes any excitement of the trio playing live in a room together, which was what made Huevos such a success. In a piece from the Austin Chronicle that gives an overview of all the reissues when they came out, Kurt says about Monsters, it was kind of like my version of the residence version of heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great description. Yeah. He goes, but I'm not going to be that overtly strange, but in terms of having everybody think I'm great or whatever, it's like at a certain point in the eighties, I realized there's a lot going on. I'm getting a lot of critical approval, but record companies don't understand how to market it even though they all own my records, all these people who won't sign me. Robert Christogau gave it an A-, which is also what he gave Meat Puppets to, calls it the guitar god record Kurt Kirkwood always had in him. Hmm. Yeah, you can't deny that there's some serious guitar work on this record. Yeah. So you talked about some, some checking them out on YouTube and whatnot. There's some cool footage from a show at the Cattle Club in Sacramento in December of 89. So right after this came out, the crowd is definitely in, into the meat puppets at the Cattle Club. They open the show with Touchdown King. It's totally bitching. Chris and Kurt hom- harmonizing together. Like you really have to, you know, to it, the, the record does, I would say it doesn't do it justice. Hmm. They also do Light, a totally ripping meltdown that's just way faster than the album version, and it just kills. 
they do in love they do like being alive um they do a really fast version of attack by monsters uh just in they do an insane run through of uh fire weasel so seven of the ten <laughs> songs they play at that cattle club show from this wow. album wow their dvd like uh alive in the 90s uh it's also the whole thing is up on youtube uh, it's exactly what it says it is. It's just a bunch of clip, clips from the 90s, live footage, interviews. Uh, the DVD starts with a barn-burning version of Attack by Monsters. Also, Ryan, have we ever talked about the KCRW Bent by Nature project? I don't think we have. Do you know what that is? I don't. Okay, so do you know this? the show Snap? It was like this late-night show on KCRW 89.9 FM. That's the show that Rollins has it has his program on no so snap was a show from 1982 to 1991 hosted by dj deirdre o'donohue kind of she was kind of like a rodney bingenheimer john peel type super influential tastemaker dj she just totally marched to her own drum she unfortunately passed away in 2001 but she has a, a lot of famous friends and kcrw has uh, this bent by nature project name after the the Glass Eye album, which I've definitely talked about that before, because uh, it's just totally awesome. Glass Eye was friends with Deirdre. Uh, this KCRW podcast called Lost Notes dedicated a season of their show to her her legacy. There's a whole episode with Rollins where he talks about their friendship. He and he really considers her a mentor. He used to guest on her show, guest host. Um. And they also talk to people on the podcast like David Lowry, Michael Stipe, Steve Wynn, Harry Shearer, many, many more. And they've also opened up her archives. She interviewed tons of artists and recorded all of them. Um, and many of them, bands and, and solo artists, played live on her show. And you can find all of them on the, or not all of them, a lot of them. They're starting to put them up on kcrw.com. And on the app, if you download the KCRW app, you can stream them. Uh, interviews with people like Paul Westerberg, Rollins, Tom Verlaine, Joe Strummer, Wire, Brian Eno, so many wow. more. Yeah. Wow. The, in the Paul Westerberg episode, they actually talk about Henry Kaiser. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, then there's their performances, Ryan. Tom Waits performed on her show in 1987, The Dream Syndicate multiple times, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. She had REM on their sh on her show in 1991. If mm. that gets gives you any indication of like how highly regarded she was. Yeah, yeah. Many, many more and the Meat Puppets uh, multiple times and the one you can listen to is from September of 1988. So a few months before this album uh, was recorded because it was recorded in spring of 89. They play lots of these songs in in this recording, in her studio. They play uh, In Love, a killer version of Wish Upon a Storm, if you want to hear like a, a more a live version of that, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, they play Light, they play Touchdown King, Meltdown. They just goof off in the studio, chat with her, with Deirdre. It just rules super hard. Um, so yeah, check out Deir Deirdre's archive. Um, you really need to see it to, to see how crazy it is. Wow. I'm sure I've read about it, like in a Rollins book or something, but just doesn't ring a bell, but it sounds amazing. Yeah, there's a whole episode of the of that uh, Lost Notes podcast where Rollins kind of talks about 
her and uh, you know how much he misses her and stuff like that. The artwork, Ryan, so it's credited to Chris and Kurt. The band always has amazing cover art, obviously. Uh, this is one of their best, in my opinion. Those are those must be the snakies. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Probably some Letraset rub-ons for the for the lettering, I would say. Yeah. The back cover, this classic uh, one of uh, Joseph Cultus's classic photos of the band. He photo photographed them a lot. They're just totally looking hunky on the back. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think, Chris, with the neon? heart and like a devil's tail or an arrow or whatever it is you can see it reflected in his shades on the on that snap show that i was just talking about deirdre she references chris's steinberger base and and uh, she thanks davo we haven't really talked about that davo clausen was the was the sound man for the band she thanks him but uh she she asks chris what's up with the george michael look <laughs> the shades <laughs> yeah yeah there's lots of uh meat puppets scribbles on the inside of the uh the liners too in the original anyways i don't have the Ryko one with all of the uh, i guess you call it the lyric sheet the Ryko has it as well has it reprinted you know those does it are... have this does it have the same like photo collage too yeah yeah it has a photo collage the blp okay. has it as well Mostly live shots by various friends. They're all kind of listed, the photographers. Um, thank you list, Rich Ford, Dave Clausen, Greg Ginn, Chuck Dukowski, Frank Riley, who I've, I've booked shows through Frank over the years. Uh, he still books the band today. Uh, I didn't know that, that he was their booking agent back then. Uh, he still books Bob Mould, many, many others. Yeah, and that buried in that photo collage too is another Meat Puppets scribble, but it's that dude with the curly nose that we're going to see on the no strings attached cover oh yeah good one yeah whenever i see these kind of kirkwood brothers doodles i just think of them just driving in their van or being backstage and just doodling to pass the time yeah i do have the sst lp for this ryan no dead wax oh yeah there are those three shots too right on the uh at least on the inside of the SST CD with them kind of like sticking their fingers and mashing a mop ball on their face. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's on the LP insert as well. It's a good record. I know why it is a, a different listen for people, I guess. And for me, there are elements of it, but the songs still shine through. The vocals are killer. I know you dig the guitar. Um, the guitar is great, but I know it kind of sticks out more for you. I just think the songs are so strong on this record. Yeah. Um, definitely, like, it's one of those ones where, dear Meat Puppets, get a great recording setup for a live set and do Monsters from start to finish. Yeah. And and let's hear that. Like, I bet you that is going to be amazing. Yeah, well, you pretty much can hear it on that in Deirdre's archive. Mm, true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, they've... The Meat Puppets have never put out a bad record, and some of their best are, in my opinion, are the ones they've done since Chris and Kurt got back together. Mm. Ballot result? Yeah, I'm on. Ballot result. Okay, you're going to pick, but I would go with uh, Light in Love or The Void. Those are my top three for sure. 
Oh, mine were Attack by Monsters, Flight of, and The Void. Let's do The Void. Okay, let's do it. Woo! Awesome. Great Meat Puppets record. I'm glad it's not our last. Yeah. Yeah, thanks to Derek, too, for, for chipping in on this episode. Yeah, we always love it when you shoot over some nugs. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, it is SST-254, the Trotsky Ice Pick, Danny and the Doorknobs record. Hey, wait a second. Haven't we done that one already? <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.